Welcome to Chan's The Man Apologetics, a podcast for training followers of Christ to see reality through the lens of the biblical worldview. I'm your host, Chan Heron. Topics include Christian doctrine, apologetics, special guests, and of course, lots of fun. Let's get started. The Bible. What do you think about this book, the Word of God, comforting stories, myths, fables, something to build your whole life upon? You know, it is the claim of Christianity that God has spoken in such a way that we actually have the objective authority we need. The Bible didn't fall out of the sky. God has spoken and he has spoken in historical texts, or at least that's the claim. The entire case for Christianity stands or falls in one way or another on the reliability of the events that are recorded in the Bible. We are faced with a very simple question. What kind of book is the Bible? Let's do some basic Bibleology 101. First of all, the word Bible means books. That, that's simply all that it means. It's a collection of writings that are separated into the Old and New Testament. That's all it is. And it's a historical book divided into the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And it's about this group called Israel, this nation of Israel, how God has chosen this group. Now, many people do not accept the Bible as reliable. Let me give you a couple quotes. This is Penn Jillette from Penn and Teller. You probably heard of him, the, the famous magician pair out in Las Vegas. But here's what Penn, here's a quote from Penn Teller. Quote, if you believe that the Bible is real because of faith, we can't touch you. They, Christians, pride themselves on believing things that are hard to believe in. They think God will bless them for that. But if you want history or fact in your Bible, you are so screwed, unquote. Now, we're going to examine that claim that the Bible is doesn't have any history or fact in it. Uh, listen to this quote. This is from Sam Harris, the famous atheist neuroscientist. He says this, quote, atheists are free to admit the limits of human understanding. In a way that religious people are not, it is obvious that we do not fully understand the universe. But it's even more obvious that neither the Bible nor the Quran reflects our best understanding of it, unquote. So those are some of the charges that are levied against the Bible. There's some basic facts about the Bible. The Old Testament is 39 books. The New Testament is 27. It was written over a period of 1,500 years in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, on three different continents by 40 different authors. And the question that we want to ask today is, is the Bible reliable? Can it be trusted? Do the events that are recorded in there, are they historical? Are they accurate? Are they relevant today? Now, I'm going to make a case in the next few podcasts for the New Testament. And I'm only going to deal with the New Testament because we're going to try to get a two for one. And what I mean by that is if we can show that the New Testament is reliable, that the things that are recorded in the New Testament 
match up with history, match up with eyewitness testimony, then what we do is we get everything in there, at least reliable. Then we also get the words of Jesus of Nazareth in there. And he says that the Old Testament is reliable. So if we can show the New Testament is reliable, then the Old Testament gets thrown in with it. Now, the way that I'm going to do this is I'm going to make the case for the New Testament using vowels. Remember your vowels. So here's our argument. Our conclusion is this. The New Testament can be trusted to be historically reliable. That's my claim. Now, obviously, I need to back this up. What are the reasons given for that claim? A-E-I-O and U. If you'll remember your vowels, and by the way, the I is lowercase, all the other vowels are capital, and that's by design on purpose, and I'll explain as we continue. But here's what each one of them stand for, and then over the next several podcasts, we will unpack those to make our case, and anybody can learn this. It's very simple. Remember your vowels. A- archaeological support, E, embarrassing details, I, eyewitness testimony, like iPad, iPhone, O, originals copied, and U, undesigned coincidences. Those are the vowels that we're going to use to make our case, so stay tuned. In today's podcast, we're going to be making a case for the Bible using A, archaeological support. The Bible has an amazing amount of archaeological support. All you have to do is if you were to go online and just Google biblical archaeology, you would go to hundreds of sites. As a matter of fact, Israel is one giant archaeological dig. Now, a book that claims that God sent his message through uh, some of the events in history should get its history right. And when you look at the New Testament, such as the book of Acts, there are actual places that you can visit. I mean, you can go to Israel, you can go to Jerusalem, you can visit the Dead Sea, you can visit the Sea of Galilee. Many of the towns that were mentioned there, Bethsaida, Bethel, Bethlehem. These are actual historical places. I want to look at four archaeological artifacts that provide support for the New Testament reliability. Probably the most famous one is the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were discovered in like the early 1940s, like 1946, 47. It has an amazing story. There was this group of people called the Bedouins, and there was a young uh, shepherd boy who one day was out shepherding his flock, but he lost one of his goats, and he couldn't find his goat. So he was walking along near Qumran, which is near the Dead Sea area, and he was tossing rocks into these open caves, and he was trying to uh, startle the goat so it would make a noise if it was in the cave, and he could go down and rescue it. So he's walking along, he's tossing these rocks, and then in one cave, he hears what sounds like glass breaking. He goes in there, he finds these these, uh, pots, and in these pots, it had all these scrolls. And Eventually, through a um, word of mouth that got back to some scholars who 
were able to examine it. When everything was said and done, there were 11 caves that were searched, and they found a total of 972 manuscripts. Now, at that time, our oldest complete Old Testament copy was 900 A.D. An entire scroll of Isaiah was found and dated to around 200 B.C. In one archaeological discovery, 1,100 years of biblical handwritten copies were spanned. Now, the scrolls contain verses from every Old Testament book except for one. Most scholars think that was, I believe it was Esther. Only about one-third of the scrolls were biblical writings, and two-thirds of the manuscripts are not biblical, but they are helpful because they give us insight into Jewish life at that time. And as a matter of fact, if you go to Jerusalem now, you can see the great Isaiah scroll that was found. And remember, it dates to around 200 B.C. Now, what is so interesting about this find with the complete Isaiah scroll is that when they looked at the Hebrew and compared it to the, the, the manuscript that we had today, it was almost 100% textually pure. The Hebrew scribes had been so careful to make sure they were copying accurately. Now, with that, since it contains the whole book of Isaiah, we have Isaiah 53. Let me read to you Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Who is Isaiah talking about? 
says he, he, like one, he, God crushed him. If you listen carefully, that sounds like Isaiah is referring to Jesus of Nazareth. But wait a minute, Isaiah didn't know Jesus. He'd never met Jesus. He lived 200 years before Christ was even born. So how would he know this? And yet this is what we discover in the great Isaiah scroll, that this passage was already written before Jesus had been born. This is an argument from omniscience. If God is the main author of Scripture, and it is the view that there is a dual authorship with uh, when it comes to the Bible. So, for example, it's correct to say that Isaiah wrote Isaiah, but it's also correct to say that God wrote Isaiah. So what we're seeing is that this could not have been written into the text later because the text was dated back to before Jesus was born. In 1961, another archaeological find was discovered in the Roman province of Judea. A group of archaeologists led by Dr. Antony Frova were excavating an ancient Roman theater near Caesarea Maritima. This was a leading city in the first century located on the Mediterranean Sea. And this limestone block was found there with a surprising inscription. The inscription is, is believed to be part of a larger inscription dedicating a temple to Emperor Tiberius. And the inscription clearly states this, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. Reason why this is so significant is the prefect usually lived in Caesarea and only went to Jerusalem for special purposes. An inscription of Pilate found in Caesarea fits with this first century world described in the Bible. The dating of the inscription in connection with its mention of Tiberius, which is around 42 BC to 37 AD, places Pontius Pilate at the same time and place as the Bible's information about Jesus. Now, if you're making up a story, how is it that you have what you want to be fictional characters, such as Pontius Pilate, if you're making up a story, and yet you find archaeological support that there was an actual individual named Pontius Pilate, that just leads to more credibility for what's recorded in the Gospels. And if you know anything about Pontius Pilate, he was the person who sentenced Jesus to die. And, and he didn't want to, but he was pressured. He found no uh, fault in him, but he was pressured by uh, the Jewish people to crucify him. So we have archaeological support that Pontius Pilate was an actual individual. The third piece of archaeological evidence is really interesting as well. It was an ossuary that was found, and an ossuary is a bone box. Now, the Jewish practice of burial is similar to the Christian practice of burial, except that what would happen would, the, the, the Jewish people would have an ancient burial chamber 
And it would include an area where the most recent death in the family lies on a kind of a rock bench. What they would do is they would wrap them up and they would put them on this bench, their family member, and they would leave them in there for about a year. And then the in the year following, the flesh would would decay and the only thing that would be left would be the bones. And then they would gather up the bones and they would put them in this ossuary, this bone box. Uh the, the the bone boxes, this one was about 14 and a half inches high by 30 inches uh, long. And it was not uncommon for Jewish families to have multiple family members' bones in there. Well, this particular ossuary that was discovered had a uh, kind of an ornate design, which would seem to point toward that there was a, a, a an important person whose bones were there. Well, when they studied the contents of this ossuary, they found that there were the remains of several people. And this is not unusual because this is what families would, would do. But they found the bones of two babies, an adolescent child, a teenage boy, an adult woman, and a man about 60 years of age. And the ossuary is an interesting chance discovery, but not something to just, you know, rock the archaeological world. Because there's many ossuaries that Jewish archaeologists have found, but on the outside of this ossuary is found an inscription in Aramaic. And it dramatically increased the value of the ossuary and importance of this piece to the world of archaeology. The inscription in Aramaic reads, Joseph, son of Caiaphas. Another ossuary additionally is found in the tomb containing an inscription reading simply, Caiaphas. First, ossuary draws the most attention because the name Caiaphas is found in the New Testament. Well, that's great. We found someone sharing the same name as someone from the Bible. The excitement from this discovery came from the big question, is this the Caiaphas from the Bible? The New Testament describes Caiaphas as one of the primary individuals involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. Matthew, Luke, and John each the gospel writers identified Caiaphas as the high priest that presided over the arrest and trial of Jesus. Now, this is important because being the high priest made him second in power only to the Roman governor. And Jewish law did not allow the high priest to sentence people to death. The Bible explains that Caiaphas worked with Pontius Pilate to carry out the death sentence on Jesus. Wait a minute, now you might be thinking, the inscription says Joseph, son of Caiaphas, not just Caiaphas. But the way the inscription is written is actually why it drew so much attention. The first century historian Josephus helps piece together the significance of this discovery. He says that the high priest at the time of Jesus was not only Caiaphas, but Joseph Caiaphas. Josephus tells us additionally Caiaphas was the Jewish high priest from 18 to 36 AD. Another source outside the Bible helps us to establish the right name at the right time. Josephus also tells us that he is referred to as Joseph, who was called Caiaphas of the high priesthood. This discovery that was made in 1990 brought a good bit of excitement to the world of archaeology. The 60-year-old man found in the ossuary is determined by Zvi Greenhut, archaeologist, and others to be the high priest involved in the crucifixion of Jesus.
For the past 2,000 years, Christians have viewed the crucifixion of Jesus as the most important event of all human history. Many people believe in the importance of the crucifixion. And when we have the Caiaphas ossuary, we actually have the bones of the high priest that sentenced Jesus to die. So what this ossuary does is it strengthens the historical reliability of the cross, which is a major event in Christian circles, by supporting the existence of one of its central characters. The fourth piece of archaeological support that I'd like to talk to is again found in another ossuary in 1968. There was a Jewish tomb that was uncovered. It dated to the first century, and there was a stone ossuary, and it had the Hebrew name John on the outside. Well, on the inside of the ossuary, there was the skeletal remains of a man in his 20s who had been crucified. Now, how did they know that the young man had been crucified? Well, the man still had a nail driven through his right heel. The nail which was about four and a half inches in length. And why was the nail still in his heel bone? Well, the end of the nail was bent, and it looked like what happened is that while the nail was being driven into the cross, the nail hit it like a knot in the wood. And with the tip of the nail bent, it would have been very difficult to pull the nail out of the wood. And so whoever buried the man just left the nail in place. Remains of olive wood were found between the head of the nail and the heel bone. And this suggests that prior to penetrating the heel bone, the nail was driven through a wooden plaque so as to increase the head of the nail, thus making it difficult for the victim to free his legs from the upright cross. Well, the bones found outside Jerusalem can be dated to really close to the time of Jesus. Now, this person was crucified a little bit different than the way Jesus was crucified because the feet were nailed individually to the outside of the cross. And his arms appeared to have been tied by ropes. Um, his arms wouldn't have experienced the same pain that Jesus went through, but it probably took this guy much longer to die. Since this uh, were dated to around the first century, we can see that crucifixion was being used. So since the the gospel writers record what happened with Jesus with the crucifixion, we can see that that was being practiced in that area because of the discovery of these. Now, when you put all four of these together, you can see, and, and like I said before, there's many others, but we have four pieces of archaeological support that help substantiate some of the, the events, the people, and the places that are recorded by the gospel writers. Thank you for listening to Chan's The Man Apologetics, a podcast aimed at promoting the Christian worldview. If you enjoyed what you heard today, consider sharing with a friend. Until next time, I'm Chan Heron.